Let me open us in prayer. And Father God, we thank you for your mercy to us in Christ. We thank you for this new morning and the opportunity to learn what you have revealed to us in your word about the state, about the church, about your plan of salvation, and how governments even figure into that. We pray that you would make us wise according to your word. We pray that you would cause us to fear you, not fear man. We pray that you would give us a burden for your people, your bride, and how we might prepare her for your coming. Give good attention spans now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Um, so the plan today is to start walking through scripture. It's kind of biblical theology day, which means we're going to follow the storyline from the garden to Christ, to Christ's people. And uh, I think we have three lectures today. It would be great. I'm going to do my darndest, do my best to also... Give, give two lectures on the storyline, but then off-road at one point into government. What is government? But let's start in Genesis. The title of this lecture here, I'll cut and paste it into comments as well as the outline. chat everyone lecture four you see there the bible's priest king storyline from adam to david and then you see the outline okay even you guys in the classroom you have you have that you get that outline the brothers in the classroom no, we can't. Uh... Okay. Brothers on Zoom all see it, I take it. Yeah. Yes, I'm getting thumbs up. The brothers in the classroom don't see it. If someone, if someone on Zoom drops it on WhatsApp, people can pick it up. So someone on Zoom drop it onto WhatsApp and most people in the class can I will. Just, just for you, Jay. Thank you. There's the teamwork, guys. <laughs> there's no, there's no I in team. All right. So yeah, the, the title of this lecture is is the Bible's priest king storyline from Adam to David for for note takers in the classroom. Bible's priest king storyline from Adam to David. I have I have five points. A B C D E. Here's A. Talk about A. A. God, the author of creation, possesses all authority over creation. God, the author of creation, possesses all authority over creation. All right? Um, and it seems right to start with God, after all. First couple of chapters of Genesis, we discover he has authority over all 
the nations of the earth as a consequence of the property of his role as creator. So if you if you if you make a game, you get to write the rules of the game. Right. Um, when you were a little kid, and you set out little army toy soldiers on the field. And you got to you got to write the the the, the, the rules of the field. The author has authority, right? So by virtue of being creator, he's also ruler of all. That, that is the origin of all authority right there. And that's precisely what we see in the movement from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2. Is the creating God of Genesis 1, he becomes the ruling God of Genesis 2, who establishes the social and moral boundaries of Adam and Eve's lives. Do this, don't do that. I created you. And we can say at least four things about the creator's authority. Okay, four things about the creator's authority. Number one, it's absolute. It doesn't require Adam's or anyone's consent. It's absolute. Number two, it's legitimate. That is to say it's morally right. Unquestionably morally right. Well, but what right do you do that? Well, I write of the fact that it's absolute and it's legitimate. Number three, it's comprehensive. There's no distinction between public and private in God's kingdom. Everything belongs to him. You know the Kuiper quote, every square inch, right? And then it is fourth, authorizing. You might say generous. God, and this, I think, in some respects, is a, a property of the fact that it's triune. Father gives to the Son, the Son gives to the Father, gives to the Spirit, and so forth. He uses it to authorize rule in others, which brings us to humanity. B, letter B, Adam. God commissions the first priest king. And the whole Bible story then starts with God's covenant with Adam. God created Adam and immediately installs him as king over the rest of creation. He says to Adam, Adam, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth, right? Genesis 1.28. So Adam was supposed to push back the orders of borders of Eden. He was supposed to fill the land with children, to subdue new territory, to rule over everything. Adam and Eve were a king and queen over creation. Yet besides being real historical people, they were also every man, every man representing all of us. Right? The first Adam. We'll get another every man, but right now we have just the first every man representing all of us. You know, like those medieval plays where every man speaks for everyone. <clears throat> Psalm 8, of course, affirms this. It teaches us that God has made us king over all of us, every man like creation, or like Adam. What is man that you are mindful of, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, which passes along the path of the sea. So there, there are those three domains again, right? Sky, earth, sea. It's crown. It's not so much Adam here. It's, it's man. What is man? He is stands in for all of us, Adam does. We're all 
created kings and queens. Every person, brothers, you have ever met was created by God to be a king or queen of creation. Your brother or sister, your colleague, your children, the homeless guy you, you pass at the entrance of the tube, um, the, the Muslim, the unborn child. Yet not only were Adam and Eve kings, they were also priests. Genesis 2.15, Adam, you must work and watch over the garden. Verse 19, you must name the animals. Verses 15 and 16, you can eat this, you can't eat that. Which means by implication, Adam was to explain these same rules to anyone else who happened to show up as a helpmate. Now, I, I, I trust you guys know this. If, if you don't, it's useful to know. If, if you jump forward to Numbers 3 and 8 and 18, you find remarkably the same job description is given to anyone? Priests. Israel's priests, that's right. They were called to work and watch over the tabernacle temple, keeping it consecrated to the Lord. So think about what a priest does. A priest is charged with naming things as clean or unclean, holy, unholy. God, of course, specially dwelled in the temple, and therefore the priest's work was to maintain the temple as a holy place. And Adam's work was the same as the priest, to maintain and protect the garden as a holy place, as a dwelling place of God himself. So Adam was a king, yes, but he was a king under God. He was an under-king, you might say. He he was, in other words, a mediating king. And so he was, in that sense, you might say, a priest king tasked with mediating God to creation. Of course, that's what a priest does. He mediates, stands between God and his creatures. And since God dwelled there in the garden, Adam was responsible to keep the holy separated from the unholy, consecrated to the Lord. And he was doing this to buy, by, he was to do this by protecting the garden. So, so Watch out for lying serpents, Adam. Be sure to pass my commands on to your wife as well. Okay, so the kind of rule that God intended for Adam and all of humanity is, is, is a priestly rule. So the king rules, a priest king rules on behalf of a greater king, God. And, and a priest king ruling on behalf of God is to work to protect what is holy. Um. In that sense, we, we can even synthesize the priest-king job in three ways. We could say it involves that three aspects, if you, if you were to sort of systematize and think through, okay, what, what exactly is a priest-king? Well, number one, priest-king images or represents God. Your, your minds might even be kind of fast-forwarding right now to think about the church and what is the church. This is where some of this is eventually heading. A priest-king images or represents God, right? We're identified with God. We his rule is a representative rule. We, to, to represent something is to represent it, to make it present again. Adam was to represent, represent God's rule. Uh, number two, a, a priest king moves outward by conquering and subduing new territory, like a king. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. And third, a priest king moves inward 
by guarding and consecrating the place where God dwells, like a true priest, inside, outside. All right, watch over this. It's just, you know, fast-forwarding again in your minds to what the church, what does the church do? Well, maybe we'll discover it's those three things. Um, I mean, another biblical thing, which we don't need to develop here, just but which runs along the same lines is the theme of sonship, right? God, uh, Adam was a kind of son of God, which we learned in First Genesis, uh, uh, Genesis 5, where Adam has a son in his own image, in his own likeness. Okay, so image likeness is applied from Adam to Seth. Well, if Adam to Seth is image likeness, it would, would seem that Adam is a kind of son of God. And sure enough, that's what Luke 3.38 tells us sons look like and act like their fathers they image them they represent them they rule if their father's a ruler but anyhow that that's another thing. israel of course then has become a son and we have the beloveds and david is a son and then, but i'm not going to follow that theme back to the storyline adam doesn't fulfill god's call to live as a priest king he doesn't represent God's rule, but speaks out his own rule. So God fires Adam, as it were, as a result of his unfaithfulness, and evicts him from the garden. Shows up for work one day. Sorry, you've lost your job. And humanity outside the garden proves utterly wicked, and so God destroys humanity in a flood, and he starts again with Noah as a new Adam. This is letter C, by the way. Noah, God raises up a new Adam. Letter C, God, Noah, God raises up a new Adam. So if you turn to Genesis 9, where you see God's covenant with Adam, Noah, or rather, let me say that, where God's covenant with Adam was implicit, God's covenant with Noah becomes explicit. God's covenant with Adam is, as it were, by virtue of creation. It doesn't need to be made explicit because it's, it's set up in the very structure of the thing itself. This is your life. I've just created you. This is what you will do. So that, that, that's where you, you find the covenant with Adam in, in Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 9 is then made explicit. He, he promises to preserve Noah's life and all humanity, assuming he fulfills his work of priest king. But you also see it again in verses 1, verse 7, be fruitful and multiply. Noah, too, is a kind of king over creation. A few verses earlier, if you look back at the end of chapter 8, we see Noah adopts this role of priest by offering a sacrifice with clean animals. Right, so a sacrifice was not necessary for a priest back in the garden, of course. There, there was no sin. There was just this guard, this place. Work and watch over. But now, post-fall, with with sin in the world, there's a need for sacrifice. So, so the priestly role, there's a sense in which priests don't necessarily have to sacrifice, but with sin in the world, they do. Um, Sorry, Dr. Lehman, uh, would you consider the covenant with Adam a uh, covenant of works? I don't use that language. You can use that language if you want to. I tend to not use it. The covenant of works, as you not guys know, is, is a, a theological construct 
that Presbyterians and many Reformed Baptists will use to sort of put together different aspects of different covenants. You know, and it's, and it's, it's the flip side of the covenant of grace. And as I'm walking through with you, I'm simply going to refer to the biblical covenants. I'm not going to refer to the, these theological covenants, theologically construed covenants of works and grace. One, I, I certainly don't like what Presbyterians do with it. They use it to smother the, the, the biblical covenants and, and create things which don't exist, like <laughs> baptism. But but my other my other well, reason I tell, I mean they're fine I'm not I'm not I'm not, I'm not entirely opposed to people using those theological constructs but they they tend to I think demand things of the biblical covenants or oversimplify things because each each of the each of the covenants of grace say Abrahamic new require commands as well. There's works involved in them as well. And, uh, and the covenant of works have gracious elements in them as well. So, yeah. Is there a reason you wanted to bring that up, brother? Well, just to know your position and uh, because... I'm reading something about covenant theology and uh, some uh, progressive covenantalists uh, uh, don't uh, agree with the definition of covenant of works in, in the Garden of Eden. Just, uh, just Brother, I am, I, am, I am a progressive covenantalist. Okay, beautiful. So you, you sniffed that out. I am, I'm, I'm right there. Okay. Yeah, thank you. So keep keep reading whatever that is. I'm sure it's right. Uh, it's the new book, 40 Questions About Coven, uh, Biblical Theology. Who wrote it? Liroshi. Uh, it's a disciple of... Uh, uh, let, me, let me take it. Well, uh, that's all right. <laughs> uh, well, listen, I'm going I'm to... Go ahead and proceed here. Then we're, we're we're at letter we're at letter D. Um, Abraham, God promises to fulfill what He commands. Okay, Abraham, God promises to fulfill what He commands. Oh, I see. Uh, Jason Derushi, Orrin Martin. Yeah, I I know those guys. Oh, and Andy Nacelli. Yeah, they're they're all well of gentry students. Yeah, uh, I would probably trust almost entirely what's in that book. I mean, I, it, would, it would express my own views. Um, Abraham, okay, so beginning with Abraham now, we get a line of common, I'm sorry, special covenants, uh, which will eventually include Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, and New. Uh, the, your covenants with Adam and Noah we can call common covenants given to creation in common and your covenants with Abraham, Mosaic, Moses, Israel, David, through Christ, we can call special because they're given God's special people. 
And the reason I'm emphasizing this is we're going to eventually discover there's institutions associated with common covenants, family state, special covenants, Davidic throne, church. And this kind of distinction, brothers, again, just to, you know, to give you some of the cookies on the bottom shelf here, uh, becomes crucial, even as you're thinking through things like church discipline. You have a man you discipline from the church. He's married to a, a woman who's a member of the church. And she wonders, does this mean I shouldn't even eat with my husband anymore? And I think it's crucial to help her understand, well, it's not the common covenant creation institution of the family that's being ruptured here. It's the special covenant institution of the church that is being ruptured here, that we're breaking or that he has broken. So no, you, you should continue to fulfill all your obligations as a wife to this husband. You know, son says, dad, I'm, I'm gay. I'm, I'm, will you come to my wedding? No, I, I, I won't come to your wedding, but still my son. Now, even the fact that the church excommunicates you or whatever, doesn't mean that the father-son thing is broken. Okay. So, so it's crucial. Okay. That's just one small example of how I, I wanted to be clear in your heads. Okay. What, what covenant is this institution authorized by? And, and therefore, what are the obligations on me as such? Okay. That I've just put the cart before the horse. I, I, just to give you a sense of this is practical stuff even though it sounds like a whole lot of biblical theology. All right. Okay, so we have, we have this special covenant given to Abraham. Um, let me ask you guys a question, though. What would you say is the relationship, and I think this is important to understand, what is the relationship between the Adamic Noahic and the Abrahamic and following covenants? Another way to ask is, what's the relationship between the common covenants and the special covenants? Anybody? The special covenants maybe are related specifically to Christ, appointed to the future Messiah, when the general covenant not. But I'm not sure. Okay. Other thoughts? Is it to do with creation and how the Noahic Covenant um, promises that the, the creation will be preserved um, and that was essential so that Christ could come uh, in that way? Okay, so Andy suggests Adamic creation, Noahic preserving creation, those as then essential for the playing out of the special covenant storyline. Good. Other thoughts? Are you thinking of the fact that the special covenant storyline will lead to the restoration of God's initial um, good design for creation that is sort of spoiled under the under both the Adamic and the Noahic covenants? 
Okay, so e, e and, Ian Randall takes a slightly different take. Uh, is it the fact that special covenant, he says, restores the, the Adamic plan? Is that, does I understand you correctly? Yeah, maybe restore is not the best word because it, it implies going back to square one. And I think the fulfillment of the special covenant is more than just a return to a kind of Edenic state. Um, what if we just use that word you just used right there, fulfill? That would be a good alternative. <laughs> okay, there's there's actually, I think there's two ways we need to connect them. And I, I think we're kind of, we're kind of there. We've, we, we sort of articulated them. Um, and again, this is going to be crucial for understanding the relationship between the church and the world and, and your mission of the church. Um, to foreshadow some, some, of the, some of the cookies we'll, we'll, we'll get out of this. Um, the first thing, first thing to notice is um, uh, look back at Genesis 128. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Now flip up to Genesis 9-1, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to him, be fruitful and multiply. What, what parts of speech, brothers, are be fruitful and multiply? This is an easy one. This is a softball. What part of speech? Amen. It's a command, imperative, that's right. Okay, now flip to <clears throat> Genesis 12. Uh, no, Genesis, just Genesis 17. Look at Genesis 17, verse 2. Well, I'm gonna, we're going to do a little Bible flipping real fast here, okay? Um, Genesis 17, verse 2. And I will make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will give it to you and to your offspring. I'm sorry, that was verse six. Verse eight, I will give to you and to your offspring after you all the land of Canaan. Now flip to chapter 22, verse 16. Chapter 22, verse 16. Because you've done this, he says, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Flip to, flip to chapter 26, verse 24. Um, chapter 26, verse 24, the Lord talking to Isaac now, fear not for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring. Okay. For your servants, Abraham's sake. And then, and then a uh, chapter 28, Isaac blessing Jacob chapter 28, verse three, God almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you be a company of priests. One more, Exodus 1, Exodus 1, uh, verse 7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was Filled with them. Okay, so if if the covenants with Adam and Noah were imperatives, be fruitful, multiply. What do we get with God's promise to Abraham, with Isaac, and Jacob? What? How does? What's the part of speech being used in those passages I just 
I just, I read. We move from imperative to what? Indicative. Indicative. Future indicative. I will make you fruitful. I will multiply you. All right? So the grammar changes from command, be fruitful and multiply, to promise. Indicative, future indicative promise. I will multiply you. So, so okay, what's the relationship in this regard between the common covenants and the special covenants? In the, in the common covenants, God gives Adam uh, a command to be fruitful and fill the earth, and in the special ones, he actually works it out himself. Yeah. So it's, it's command and fulfill, right? Essentially, isn't that what's going on? I'm going to do it. Which tells you the line of Christ isn't setting aside of what's commanded in creation. The line that's going to lead to Christ is going to fulfill what was intended all along, right? Not what we're seeing? The kind of multiplying, fulfilling that's going to continue? Okay, that's, that's, the, that's only the first way. There, there's a second way as well to uh, to to construe the relationship between common and, and, and special. And that is creation, yeah, but then also this preserving, I forget who said it, maybe it was Andy, this preserving of, of creation um, where a rainbow is given and a promise to say, my, I'm setting my bow of war down, I'm going to allow things to continue, right? With, with the bow aimed towards heaven, as it were. Uh, so there is a platform element in the movement from creation. So, so creation provides the platform on which new creation, redemption, is going to occur. So there's, there's two ways to construe the relationship between common and special covenant. Way one, promise fulfillment. Way two, platform for for plan of salvation and and we're going to discover i think these are both essential for understanding the storyline as, as well as the work of the, the the respective institutions we're going to talk about increasing the state or government and and church um in genesis 9 5 and 6 we're going to see the authority of government given. I'm going to come back in the next lecture and just drill down on, on those, those few verses there. Um, okay, letter E, <coughs> speeding along. We're going, to, we're going to finish out the Old Testament, though, in this first lecture. What do we got time-wise? How are we doing? We got five more minutes, don't we? Shoot. Uh, I think I can do this pretty quickly. Yeah, okay. Uh, uh, letter E, Moses and David, God implements the Abrahamic promises. And, you know, the, the question is, okay, what's the relationship between the Abrahamic and the Mosaic Davidic covenants? What's the relationship between the Abrahamic and Mosaic Davidic covenants? And I think to answer that, let's just look at a couple of texts. First look at Exodus 19.5. Uh, if you will listen to me and carefully keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. Notice that God promises they will be a kingdom of priests. So both 
of those ideas become explicit. It's as, it's as if the dimmer switch in the room has been turned up. Okay, before I saw sort of shadowy figures in the room. Is that a couch? Is that a is that a coat rack? What is that? Uh, you turned up the dimmer switch. Oh, okay, that is a couch. That's not a coat rack. That's that's Mike Gilbert Smith there. I see. Um, that, that that's what we that's what we have with with Exodus nineteen. The dimmer switch is turned up. We we can more clearly see. We got a priestly theme. We got a kingly. You know, my kingdom of priests. Um, yet a nation that works as priest kings depends on. This also becomes more explicit. Their obedience to God's covenant. If you listen to me and carefully keep my covenant, by doing this, of course, they'll they'll remain consecrated to God as his holy nation. They'll be his witnesses. And now turn to uh, Deuteronomy 4. Deuteronomy 4, verses 6 and 8. Uh, carefully follow them, for this will show your understanding in the eyes of the peoples when they hear about all these statutes. They will say, this great nation is, is indeed a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God near it as the Lord our God is to us? Whatever we call to him. What great nation has righteous statutes and ordinances like this entire law I set before you day, today? Okay, so you, you guys have seen mannequins in the store, right? Department store. A mannequin's job is to model what the clothes look like. And Israel's job was to be a kind of mannequin. And right? its job was to image or represent God. Here, you know, here's what the here's what the suit looks like, as it were. It was to model what God's justice and righteousness looked like so all the nations could see it. When they hear about these statutes, they will say, this great nation is indeed a wise and understanding people. So the Mosaic Covenant was a device for implementing Abraham and before him Adam's priestly rule. And God would then employ Israel and his Davidic king to fulfill this office he first gave to Adam. Okay? So he would take this job he had given to Adam and Noah and then Abraham, the sons, and go corporate with it, you might say. It's not just one man being called to the office and said, here's your job. It's a whole company. I have a job for you. And the Mosaic Covenant would teach these Abrahamic descendants to walk in the way of justice and righteousness so they could represent God's way of righteousness and justice to the, to, to the nations. It would demonstrate what holiness looks like by being a people consecrated to the Lord. So what's the relationship between the Abrahamic and the Mosaic Davidic? It's, 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 it's Abrahamic is the promise. Mosaic Davidic is implementing or administering that promise, you might say. That's the relationship. Promise, Abrahamic, implementing or administering the promise. Mosaic Davidic. Um, of course, that meant separating out also, and here's another feature of these two covenants, separating out a class of citizens known as priests. And the purpose of this office was to highlight the specific lesson of what it means to be holy or consecrated to the Lord. Uh, you might say there were to be an object lesson for what it means to be a priest. I remember when my girls were little, I took them to the Museum of Natural History and we stood before this big stuffed buffalo and um, on the railing, you couldn't go up and touch this massive stuffed buffalo, but a little patch of fur 
on the railing you could touch. Right? Here, here's what the here's what the buffalo feels like. Here's a little patch of fur. Right? These museums, I'm sorry, these priests were the little patch of fur. That's what the Levitical priests are. A little, they're, they're an object lesson. Like all the regulations for separating clean from unclean, holy from unholy, these elaborate rituals for sacrifice, all the care the priests took to undertake to, to, to fulfill their, their priestly duties were this little object lesson, this little patch of fur for teaching God's people as a whole how to be distinct and marked off from the world, how to be consecrated to the Lord, devoted to the Lord. Yet not only did you have a, a class of priests, you then separated out a king. And this, this takes us to Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 and 19. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of his law, approved by the Levitical, Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his statutes and by doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. He may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left. So he may continue long in the kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So again, what do we have here? We have another little patch of fur, another little object lesson to teach us about the real thing. These kings were to rule, but they were to rule under God, right? Reading his law. They, they were to put themselves above their brothers. So, so do you want to know what a priestly king is like? Well, look at these two patches of fur. Touch them both. Now, people, you are to be like that. And God's covenant with David, like his covenant with Israel through Moses, was part of implementing or administering this Abrahamic promise. Okay? And I will make your name great, like the great ones of the earth, 2 Samuel 7. So the king of Israel bore a special relationship with God, such as the son of David was the son of God. Not only that, but the king of Israel had a unique role in relation to God's covenant with Israel. He was not a priest per se, but he was priest-like covenant mediator, representing God's justice and righteousness as covenant Lord to the people and also representing the people to God, embodying them in their cause before him. Okay, so in short, the role of king was not to be a priest, but his rule was to be priestly. So, you know, what might we say, the last last comment, brothers, I'm three minutes over, but last comment, what might we say the mission of Israel and its kings? Well, together, the mission of Israel and its kings was to do what Adam and Eve were called to do, to be priests and kings and all of life, imaging or representing God by being consecrated to him, right? Um, in all of life, what you eat, what, who you sleep with, how you spend your money. It's not like Israel had a religious area of life and then a political or cultural area of life. All of their life was to be under the lordship of, of, of Yahweh. Um, and, 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 in, and in so doing, show the nations what God is like. But at the same time, the Israelite king was to preserve the lives of the people. So there's that element as well. When we come back after break, I'm going to go back to Genesis 9, 5, and 6 and look particularly at this kingly role through government and that institutions. Okay, so if you have any questions from this session, save them. We'll come back in 20 minutes. Well, it is 625. Um, 
what is government? I have I have placed it, brothers, in your. You'll see I placed it in the chat section, the outline of of um, this next lecture. I think that. In some sense, it's going to feel like we're, we're peeling off right now into political science class. But I think these are things that you tend not to hear pastors and churches and Sunday school classes and whatnot talking about. Yet I think it's crucial to understand these things, to understand how it is we're going to engage politically. And so we're, we're going to go through theories of government here, right, for, for a moment, from the Bible, and purposes for the government, from the Bible, and limits of the government, from the Bible. I, I think it's important that you as church leaders understand these things. Uh, if you need to know your own job description as a pastor, and the church's job description, you also need to know, I think, the government's job descriptions, all right? So that's what we're going to think about now. Um, Just as soon as I can get to the right page, here we are. Okay. Um, there, there's a temptation. I'm under A. God, churches need good governments. So if you, if you, I'm hoping, trusting those of you, somebody can put it on WhatsApp for the for the brothers in the classroom. But if you don't have it, letter A. Churches, quote unquote, need good government. Churches need good governments. And I say it like that because there's a temptation to think that governments don't really matter, only salvation matters. And I understand and agree with a part of this thinking. Eternity is certainly much longer than anything in this world. And so eternity weighs more. Yet saying governments don't matter is also pretty short-sighted ironically it's like saying you know feeding my children doesn't matter only sharing the gospel with my children matters like, okay right let's, let's see how long that works apart from feeding my children i will never have the opportunity to share the gospel with my children and obviously we're, we're going down the platform purpose of the Adamic and Noahic covenant, as we talked about in the last section, right? Uh, apart from good governments that establish peace, order, and flourishing through the work of justice, Christians won't have the opportunity to point people to the way of salvation. Government provides this basic platform for life. <coughs> and here I would say, just ask many Christians in parts of Syria and Iraq over the last decade, leave, convert, or be killed said the Islamic State to Christians in city after city. At one point, gratefully, things have improved. You may remember Philip Jenkins said in, in Christianity Today, the end of Christianity in Iraq is in sight, is within sight. Now, that typical overstatement, typical hyperbole coming from a, a, a professor and a media, a Christian media. Nonetheless, it wasn't unreasonable, in a sense, the, the scale of disaster at that point a few years up to a few years ago in iraq was 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 beyond doubt christians were being murdered raped enslaved and turned into refugees 
by the, the Islamic State claiming to possess state power. And that's hardly the first time in history when evil governments have threatened to wipe out all the Christians in the region. So the Islamic invaders nearly extinguished Christianity in North Africa in the 7th century. The Mongol conqueror Tamerlane did the same in Central Asia in the 14th century. Uh, ruling shoguns of 17th century Japan would have succeeded in their quest to destroy Christianity were it not for a few thousand hidden Christians. Now, I know we as Christians like to quote Tertullian, who famously said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and sometimes that's true. A few martyrs can hearten believers, and I ironically strengthen the church in a certain place, yet sometimes it's not true. So Tamerlane's armies, for instance, killed around 17 million people, or 5% of the Earth's population at the time. And so historian Samuel Hugh Moffat wrote a book called A History of Christianity in Asia, and he says, Tamerlane swept the continent with the persecution to end all persecutions, the wholesale massacres that gave him the name of the exterminator and gave Asian Christianity what appeared at the time to be its final fatal blow. It's not like the church was revived through his persecutions. It really was basically extinguished for a long time. And so, brothers, whatever troubles you and I might have in our, our respective countries, praise God for the freedom and peace we still enjoy. And I, I begin with these historical illustrations simply to make the point good government matters. More than that, the Bible teaches churches need good governments in order for us to do our work. Indeed, this is why God gave authority to human beings to establish governments in the first place. And fundamentally, God gives, this is letter B, servants or imposters, letter B, servants or imposters. Fundamentally, God establishes governments to serve all people, but his own people, I would say, especially. That may be hard to believe because so many of oppose us, so many of them oppose us, opposes people, but that, that's, what it's, that's what it's there to do. And broadly speaking, I would say there are two kinds of governments that show up in the Bible, those who know they are under God and those who think they are God or are equal to God. Uh, we talked about this a little bit yesterday, but just to repeat, the first kind who know they are under God tend to protect God's people. The second kind who think they are God or are equal to God attack God's people. The Egyptian pharaohs thought they were gods. The, the Babylonian leaders uh, thought they had a special relationship to God and could speak, as it were, for God. Um, and in both cases, they, they attacked God's people. Um, the first kind, under God, knows they are servants. The second kind doesn't, and they, they act like divine imposters and beasts, Psalm 2, Revelation 13 and 17. Uh, the first kind is more likely to drive in their God-assigned lanes. The second kind is going to drive outside of them. Now, obviously, you know that no governments are all good or all bad. Even the worst governments help the traffic lights to work. And the best governments spend money they shouldn't. And God employs the best and the worst both for his sovereign purposes. So think of the death of Christ at the hands of Pilate. 
Pilate served in spite of himself. And all governments are God's servants in that sense. Still, beastly governments ordinarily make the work of God's people much harder, sometimes impossible. And Christians should therefore study what makes the difference. And insofar as we are given any stewardship, we should put our hands to building one kind and not the other, and we should pray for one kind and not the other, okay? And just as we learn, need to learn to, read the, learn to read before we can read the Bible, so we need good governments providing peace and safety before the church can do its work. You can't get to church if you're bludgeoned by bandits on the way. The terrible reigns of the Islamic State, Tamerlane, proved the larger point in reverse. Governments really can impede the way of salvation, right? Okay. Um, in this, okay, one more thing on that. I would say in that sense, the purpose of government, you could say, is like the guardrails on a mountain road, mountain highway. If, if, if the immediate purpose of those guardrails is to keep the cars on the road, Approximate purpose is to keep them on the road. The larger ultimate purpose is to help cars to get from city A to city B. And likewise, I think we can say the immediate proximate purpose of government is justice, peace, and order. Everyone should benefit. The larger purpose of government is to serve God's and the church's redemptive purposes. It builds a stage, a platform for the story of redemption. So States play a preservative role in and of themselves, but they exist to serve the larger purposes of redemption. Um, any questions on what I've said so far? Is that all clear? Maybe I could just ask a quick question. Um, where, where do you see our governments then in, in this? Uh, I think that's helpful distinction. But you are. Our government gives us much protection still as Christians, but I don't think we can really see, see them as a government who know they're under God. Um, how, how, would you, how would you see that? Somewhere in between? Yeah, I mean, I think most of the time you're, you're going to have, it's somewhere on the spectrum, right? It's not, a, it's not a light switch. It's not a binary thing. It is more of a spectrum thing. And, and there is... Uh, my government, my government technically knows it's under God. One nation under God with liberty and justice for all, we say in the Pledge of Allegiance. You, you look at the U.S. dollar bill, it says under God, right? And, and even England's Anglican establishment, you know, and, and, and the Queen's Easter Day speeches and whatnot. I mean, there, there is a nominal sense in which your nation and my nation both acknowledge a kind of under Godness. Um, every single U.S. speech ends with president's speech of God bless, God bless, God bless you and God bless America or something like that. So there is a kind of civil religion that that continues, I think, in both of our countries in, in different forms. Um, and I think that is worth something. I think that is worth a little bit. It is nominal. But it does act as a, a kind of restraint and on what it could be, as opposed to, say, a purely you know, secular, atheistic, communist government, or as opposed to a Muslim government, um, which would just 
allow for radical different potentialities. Um, but yeah, it's nominal, it's flimsy, it's frequently contradicted. So we're somewhere on the spectrum. Good question. Uh, anything else? But, but, but I think the point is we, we, we do want to push one way rather than another way on that spectrum. Okay, two theories of government. You see letter C, two theories of government, a, a democratic version of where government authority comes from and a biblical version. Let me just briefly say something about the democratic version. And I'm really, I'm really going to work within the Lockean liberal tradition, democratic tradition here. And I, the Lockean democratic tradition is very much hardwired into the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution. I, I don't know to what extent um, you, you guys grow up hearing that kind of language that's, that's inside of Locke um, with your quote-unquote unwritten constitution. Um, it's, it's, it's certainly prominent over here. Um, anyhow, the, the, the claim that a government gets its authority from God sits uncomfortably with aspects of the Lockean, John Locke, liberal democratic tradition, uh, ever since Locke, we have liked to believe that governments derive their powers, in, in the words of the Declaration of Independence at least, from the quote-unquote consent of the governed. That uh, obviously is, a, is Locke's idea, a, a British idea, from the consent of the governed. So in, in, that, in that view, there is a pre-political version of ourselves. That's us, us minding our own business. And life becomes political when we decide to get together to form a government for regulating some of our actions. So I'm really tired of the fact that you, you keep sweeping your, keep raking your leaves into my yard. Um, meanwhile, you get tired of the, the loud music I'm playing at my parties at night. And so we agreed to form a town council to regulate things like leaf raking one leaves into another person's yard and, and you know, the volume of, of party music at, at nighttime. Um, and it, it's at that moment that we step into the quote unquote political. We form this town council to adjudicate these kinds of things and set down some rules. And, and the regulated areas of our lives, we refer to quote, as quote unquote public matters. The unregulated areas we refer to as private matters. Uh, but the source of this town council's authority, this government's moral authority to make the decisions that say you can't rake your leaves into his yards and you can't play music too loud after 10 is our own consent okay our consent is the source of the government the town council's moral authority there's not some other source of moral authority or moral obligation out there that gives the rules that we agree on okay i i will agree not to rake my leaves into yard and 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 you play your music so loud um, is the source of the moral authority that we'll both do it. So it's, it's making good on my promises is the, is the very heart of a, of a, of a theory, good, a theory of consent. Um, and then those bind all of us. We've agreed to do them together because it's kind of the, the authority of a contract. Um, and, and that's what people sometimes refer to this. This is the forming of a social contract. 
Then this does not mean a contract between governors and governed. It's a contract that forms the government. Okay. And in a nutshell, I would say that's how many Westerners view government and its authority and our obligation to obey it. Okay. So that's that's the democratic version of where government authority and moral obligation to obey that government comes from. Now, the Bible's version of government authority is pretty different. Uh, the Bible says a government's authority comes from God. Turn to Romans 13. You know, we can say historically, sure, may, may, maybe the, a government formed as a certain kind of social contract. A bunch of people got together. They agreed to form a government. Fine, fine. Historically, that's how it happened. But, but how does that government have moral obligation to constrain us to obey? Well, according to the Bible, according to Romans 13, it can constrain us to obey because God says we must obey it. However, God here historically, its moral obligation depends on God's must. Verse 1, Romans 13, 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, who resists authorities resists what God has appointed. Verse 2, for he is God's servant. Verse 4, he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath. Okay, the text here, don't need to say it, it's clear, right? Government represents him. God are, governments are his servant, his minister. No governing institution exists outside the larger institutional realities of God's law. Jesus says the same thing to Pilate in John 19. You would have no authority over me at all unless it were given to you from above. So there is no pre-political you and I. You and I are always under God's rule. We should obey governments, not as a fulfillment to keep our promises, as a fulfillment of the contract that we've consented to. We obey government out of obedience to God. To resist it is to resist him. Okay? That's why... John Wesley wrote the American colonists in a, in a, in a what do you call it, a gentle letter, an urgent letter to the American colonists, exhorting them to obey King George III and said, you guys, this is clear. Look at Romans 13, right? Now, will non-Christians establish governments for other reasons and for other gods? Of course they will. But I'm speaking to what Christians should believe and why Christians should act. Now, Christians should affirm a form of, of, of this line between public and private. I, I will accept that lesson from the liberal tradition. And there might be some legitimate adjustments between one culture and another in terms of what the government regulates and what it doesn't. But let's be clear, the decision about what's public and what's private doesn't entirely depend on the whims of the day. You know, a culture might decide that, oh, child abuse is a private matter. Well, I'd say that that culture would be wrong and unjust to do so. I think the Bible would place child abuse within the government's jurisdiction. Well, explain in a moment. Even if people disagree over what constitutes child abuse. So we must prosecute and protect children. In other words, I would say the line between public and private doesn't ultimately determined by our consent or our agreement. I think it, 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 gets, it should be, from a Christian's perspective, determined by what the Bible says the authority of government is, okay? Okay, letter D, three purposes for government. Any questions on what I've said so far following two theories of governments? So there is a, 
between the government and the God and the social contract, they, they, they are mutually exclusive. Two or one, or is one or the other. I, I'm going to offend a lot of my fellow countrymen, but say yes. I think that's correct. Now, it's depend, it depends on what kind of assertion you're making. If you're saying as a matter of historical circumstance, you know, the U.S. government or the Canadian government or whatever was formed by the agreement of people, and, and we hold to a democratic form of government in which you know, the people elect, that, that, that's fine. But I would say, where does the moral authority of that government come from? It's either from God or from man. A man cannot serve two masters. He will love one and hate the other or despise one and, and serve the other. So yes, I, th I think it's either the moral authority of government comes from us or it comes from God. As a historical explanation, doesn't matter. As a moral explanation, one or the other. Make sense? Okay, three purposes of government. Okay, well, so there's another way of asking the question: what what determines the line between public and private? What what, what determines the jurisdiction? What should governments regulate? What should they not regulate? Should the NHS, you know, insist on transgender operations for any 14-year-old who shows up and says she wants one? Um, I think we, we can see three purposes of government in the Bible, and I think all three can be found in the opening chapters of Genesis, in Genesis 9. I'll go ahead and turn there, brothers. Uh, but just to review, chapter 1 told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue, and have dominion, made them kings and queens, so that creation would flourish and thrive. We thought about the trouble is, of course, they reject God's plan, got to work for ruling themselves in chapter 3. Cain graphically demonstrates what human self-rule produces. In chapter 4, murder. And therefore, God repeats the commission he gives to Adam and Eve in chapter 9. Look at 9 verses, verse 1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Uh, yet he then makes provisions for human violence. He makes provision for the Cain's killing the Abel's. Uh, you see this in verse 5. Look at verse 5. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every piece. I will require it. And from fellow man, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For man made, God made man in his own image. Notice, notice there in verse 5, how many times does God say, I will require? Softball. I guess the phrase softball. Does the phrase softball make sense to me? <laughs> you guys don't really play softball, do you? Easy one. Three. Three times. Is it by consent? No, God requires it. Right? I will require. Government is not something human beings have created or contracted. God is the initiator 
of government. He makes these requirements of us. And what exactly does he require? Well, it says a reckoning, at least in my translation. This is how God authorizes human beings to use force against one another in the face of injustice. And I think this authorization provides the first step in understanding God's purpose for government. Okay, purpose one. You see this in your outline. Purpose one, to render judgment for the sake of justice. This is the most immediate and proximate purpose of government, to, 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 to render judgment for the sake of justice. And notice what, what the reckoning requires here. It's life for life, right? It's not life for stealing a horse or life because you hold different religious views. It's life for life. There's a, there's a principle of mathematical equivalency and fairness built into God's authorization right here. And so I think the implication is that lesser crimes should also be punished with matching penalties. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Right? So whatever the severity of the circumstances at play, at the end of the day, it's about justice and God requires it. And it's this, this divine requirement to shed blood for blood that provides government's authority with teeth. It can require you to pay your taxes or drive the speed limit or keep your employer from cheating you. It possesses the threat of force, and that threat is a morally legitimate one, says God. I require it. It gives a government the right to defend its citizens from foreign invaders. I think you have a theory of just war bound up in these verses. And it gives them the right to imprison people for life when they take that life from others. And this life for life principle, I think, is perhaps most obviously demonstrated in discussions about capital punishment. Now, you and I can argue about whether life imprisonment or capital punishment is a more just and better way of establishing a reckoning. But here's a point we must not miss. And that is that the punishment given for a crime, whatever form it might take, is not merely about retribution or paying someone back. It's not just about deterring future crimes or rehabilitating the offender, prominent theories of punishment these days. Rather, punishment most fundamentally is, in fact, ironically, about affirming the life and worth and value of the victim. Look, look at that last phrase in verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So taking the life of the killer demonstrates the, the fact that the life of the person who has already been killed really is worth that much. It's that valuable. After all, it was life in God's own image. So suppose, you know, <clears throat> I lose your diamond ring, your wife's diamond ring, and I say, ah, oh, I'm so sorry. Here's a stick of gum. My guess is that you would not feel justly compensated. You would feel justly compensated if I gave you something of equal value to the ring. Justice must acknowledge the value of your, of your wife's ring. It was valuable and precious and beautiful, right? Right? And ironically, the refusal to even consider the possibility of capital punishment, typically argued as a way of affirming a murderer's life, undermines the value of the victim's life. It says, yeah, that murder was bad, but yeah, it could be weighed out against a few years in prison. But I think the mathematical equivalency of blood for blood affirms the value of the shed blood. It, it yields a reckoning. It doesn't undo the crime, but it acknowledges fully for a watching universe the gravity of what's been done. It offers justice. And justice, the rest of the Bible teaches, is a beautiful thing. It protects the downtrodden, the oppressed, the hurting. 
Now, are, are, are there limits to a government's authority when it comes to rendering judgment? And, and what if the government uses force excessively and unjustly? You know, just ask the families of, of victims of police brutality how they feel about governmental force. Well, here, here's another beautiful thing about the call for mathematical equivalency in Genesis 9-6. It creates a governing mechanism, get this, that is self-correcting. Uh, that is to say, the verse creates a boomerang effect against any excessive force, no matter the source. So if the dirty sheriff shoots a man for a minor altercation in the town saloon, well, the verse boomerangs back against him even if he is the lawman. In other words, no person, no governing authority stands above Genesis 9-6. Hitler does not stand above Genesis 9-6, the power-hungry king, the genocidal dictator, the racist police officer, are not permitted to use force unjustly. They're constrained by Genesis 9-6 as well. So when you have an unjust government, you should work to correct the injustice, even if it's perpetuated by the one in authority. Why? Because God requires it, says verse 5. So if you're, if you're going to make an argument for the American Revolution, or any revolution, you have to make the argument that the government was using an excessive degree of force. It was acting unjustly by the principles of mathematical equivalency, and therefore, by the very rules of justice established in Genesis 9-6, we need to topple this government. That's how you would make the argument. Um, now, you can go back to any specific historical instance and say, you know, this revolution did, did not meet those qualifications. But if you're going to make the argument, that's how you make the argument. And I think as we continue reading the Bible, what we see is that justice remains the purpose of government. God grants authority to human, human beings to form governments for the sake of establishing a preliminary this world justice. First Kings 3.28. And all Israel, write this down, First Kings 3.28. And all Israel heard the judgment the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Need wisdom from God to do justice. Write this down. Proverbs 20, verse 8. A king who sits on the throne of judgment winnows all evil with his lies, with his eyes. Sits on the throne of judgment, winnows all evil with his eyes. Or Proverbs uh, 29, verse 4. By justice, a king builds up the land. By justice, a king builds up the land. And of course, Romans 13 again, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is a servant of God and an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So governments should, should protect their citizens from threats on the outside and the inside. They should punish the Canes when they kill the Abels, or they should do what they can to protect the Abels in the first place. They should uphold the value of every single human life, young and old, aging and unborn, rich and poor, minority and majority. And so here, you know, is, is a very concrete illustration. Just consider 
child, or what we call in our country, child protective services, right? A government agency. And insofar as CPS seeks to shelter children from violent and abusive parents, I would say it's acting as God's servant and fulfilling its Genesis 9, 5, and 6 mandate. And Christians should praise God that, you know, uh, I think we both live in a country where the government takes an interest in protecting children from abusive parents. And therefore, I think Christians should be vocal and known for supporting CPS. CPS workers, or whatever you call it, should find that Christians are the most cooperative. And church pastors likewise should treat not treat reports of abuse against children of members as an internal church affair, but recognize that abuse belongs to the state's jurisdiction and report those cases. Right? Even recently, had a pastor who's who's uh, uh, one of the elders' wives reported it to the state, and and the, the parents of the report the, the ch- report the child being reported on were angry at the pastors and the elders for standing behind this this elder's wife who said that's this is a church matter well, no it's not this is a state matter right? that's purpose one okay purpose one to render judgment for the sake of justice the most proximate explicit purpose two to build platforms of peace order and flourishing to build platforms of peace, order, and flourishing. So governments don't possess the authority to render judgment and establish justice for their own sake. The the goal is to build a platform of peace, order, and flourishing on which humans can live in their lives. Let's let's get into the textual weeds here just for a a second more. Uh, Notice the context of Genesis 9, 5, and 6. So God had punished the world through a flood and brought Noah and his family off the ark in Genesis 6 to 8. Um, Verses 1 and 7 of chapter 9, look there then, are sort of like two pieces of bread on a sandwich. And they repeat this charge given to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, God says, in two pieces of bread. And and then notice how the meat of verses 5 and 6 fit inside these two pieces given in verses 1 and 7 authority not to, to for shedding blood for blood uh what that seems to do then is it facilitates this larger enterprise of filling the earth and ruling over it okay so governments establish peace order and some measure of flourishing so that people can fulfill god's greater dominion mandate that's pretty clear so purpose one of government leads to or allows for purpose two Justice leads to or allows for order and flourishing. And again, that's what Proverbs 29, verse 4 says. By justice, a king builds up the land. By justice, a king builds up the land. And I think we see commendable examples of governing authorities doing this in the Old Testament. So Joseph, as prime minister of Egypt, helped the nation prepare for famine, right? Uh, Israel's law included provisions in its agricultural policy that cared for the poor. King Solomon pursues an astute export and import strategy that made Israel prosperous by justice. A king builds up the land. Now, these leaders were concerned with more than punishing crime and administering justice. They were also looking to establish a foundation of provision from which people could pursue God's greater calling. Now, sometimes people describe government as a necessary evil, but I don't think that's right. Even in a perfect and unfallen world, someone has to decide whether 
Cars are going to drive on the right or the left side of the road. Order must be established for people to flourish. I think, I think a contemporary illustration of how governments bring peace and flourishing can be found in the work uh, of, of federal aviation authorities. In, in my country, Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA. What does what, what the FAA or your equivalent do? Well, they establish regulations on everything from the installations of rivets on the body of the aircraft to the requirement that pilot, pilots have a command of weather theory. Now, is this, is this wrongful governmental intrusion? Is this going beyond God's Genesis 9 authorization? Well, you might try doing an internet search on commercial airline crashes due to pilot error or technical malfunction over the last three decades. And what you'll find is that dozens of major crashes have occurred from airlines in smaller, poor nations that don't regulate these things. But you will find only one, maybe two, among U.S. or British airlines in that time. In other words, or just the wealthier nations generally. In other words, the regulations of our respective federal aviation authorities arguably save thousands of lives each year. And I would say this is tied to the government's mandate to do justice. And apart from such regulations, it's likely that greedy interests would, from time to time, compromise various safety standards for the sake of financial gain. So in other words, brothers, governments exist to build a platform on which human beings can pursue God's dominion mandate. A platform of peace, order, and prosperity, albeit one that should be tied to the more foundational call to produce justice. Now, does this mean governments possess a responsibility to fund health care or education or, or retirement programs or welfare programs for the for the for the for the poor? Um, a little while ago, I was, I was walking down the street on Capitol Hill, and I was a few blocks from the Capitol, and I walked past a group of 50 or so marchers with picket signs, and they were chanting, health care is all right, health care is all right. Not a very creative chant, but, you know, welcome to an ordinary day in, in Washington, D.C. <laughs> I'm not going to make a case for or against an entitlement like health care. But if you, if you want to make sure that your position is biblically legitimate, I think this is how you would need to do it. You would, you would make an argument from Genesis 5 and 6 and related texts that God authorizes governments to provide health care or education towards people on the grounds of justice, as well as peace, order, and flourishing. So my more progressively minded, and maybe European friends, Christian friends, might argue that universal health care affirms the humanity of the economic underclass, making premature death or crime less likely. You know, you might argue that certain systemic injustices that produce generationally entrenched ethnic and class disparities, and that these injustices and disparities require a reckoning. Meanwhile, my more conservative and often American Christian friends might point to the notion of private property implicit in the Dominion Mandate and the command not to steal. They might argue that once a taxation rate reaches a certain point, it becomes state-sponsored stealing, not to mention the injustices undermining the biblical principle of a laborer being worth his wages and various emphases on personal responsibility. And I would say on both sides of these, here's a good conversation. Let's have it. It's a great conversation. My larger point here is both perspectives should work to make the arguments through the grid of Genesis 9, 1 to 7. 
and other passages that help us elucidate its meaning. Either argue that such and such entitlement goes beyond God's authorization or is unjust, or argue that such and such entitlement falls within the authority given in Genesis 9 and fulfills the requirements of justice. Um, yeah, so it, it, it's right here in this argument that liberals and conservatives have regarding such and such entitlements that, that throws us into a need for wisdom. Uh, look, look, look or th think again, if you turn there, great, to uh, uh, 1 Kings 3.28, where it says the people marveled that God had given wisdom to Solomon to do justice, I would say very much there you have the political theology of the Bible in a, in a single verse. You don't, you don't need Plato or Aristotle or whoever. You just need 1 Kings 3.28. And the people were amazed. This is right after the incident with the prostitute. You know, the two prostitutes, my baby, no, my baby. Uh, I know, bring a sword. And when he when he said that, and they figured out who the real mom was, we we receive you know we read the summary verse. The people were amazed at the wisdom God had given to Solomon to do justice. Um, that that that's what we need. We need wisdom to do justice, and wisdom is not always clear. It's it's possible that in some circumstances, justice is going to require an entitlement, while in other circumstances, it wouldn't. Wisdom might say, look at these statistics, consider these trend lines and outcomes. Um, an argument from wisdom for justice can make use of all sorts of common grace material. Uh, so what belongs in the government's jurisdiction, what doesn't? What's public, what isn't? Well, I, I'm not going to try to draw those lines for you precisely. I am trying to give you the the uh, the grid to think it through, okay. Uh, let's see, it's seven oh seven. I assume this lecture was going to go into the next one. I, I'll stop there. Any questions before we get to the next point, which we'll probably re resume when we come back? Any questions on what I've said on points one or two? Jonathan, I, I have a question. If it's okay, um, yeah, it's uh, it, it's a uh, an application really of 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 the first purpose. Um, yeah. Here in the UK, I don't know if it's the same in the States, here in the UK, um, if, if somebody is assaulted uh, by someone, they have, the, the police might ask them, would you like to press charges? And uh -huh. you then have a decision to make about whether you want that person to be prosecuted for assaulting you. Yeah, it's, it's the same here. Okay. Do you think that's a legitimate question to ask someone because thinking in terms of yesterday and spheres of authority um do i have the authority to say to the state no you shouldn't prosecute them for for perpetrating an injustice against you, me you mean do you as do, do you as the victim have that authority or you yeah. as a third party third party i would say certainly not um do you as a victim that's a that's a great question i've never i've never thought about that um it would it would seem I, I could see making an argument that the the victim of a crime can uh, say I, I'm I'm going to yes he he took my <laughs> I think I think I think of Les Miserables right I think of I think of the priest you know the Jean Valjean steals his candles and then the 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 
they they show up and 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 the priest says, "Oh no, I gave him those candlesticks." And they're like, "Really?" And uh, as an act of mercy, as an act of, I, I I suppose I suppose you could. Okay, you've stolen my horse. When I say I'm not going to press charges, what am I saying? I, I guess you could say I'm saying my horse is as good as his. I'm giving it to him. Right at that moment, I'm giving him my candlesticks. Uh, it does seem like there would be space for something like that. Okay. I'm gonna, I'm gonna forswear resentment. I'm gonna forswear a a penalty. At the same time, I could see what making an argument. I, ironically, it's actually not your obligation, not your your place to do that because the government possesses this this authority. So bottom line, I guess I could see going either way. I think I'd want to, I'd want to make room for mercy. So that that's another whole area. Is is there room for forgiveness, clemency, mercy by a government in cases of justice, or is this absolute and automatic? Well, no. I I think you also have to make provision for, for mercy and for clemency in various situations. Um, so. Yeah, I think I'll leave that there. Okay, so you wouldn't you, necessarily Ian. consider it a kind of a usurpation of the state's power? I don't think so. Okay. Thank you. I, that, I mean, this is off the top of my head, brother. I've, I've literally never thought about that question before, so. I mean, I, I ask it because of a, a pastoral situation where that very thing's happened, where, where a church member has said, look, I've been assaulted, the church have asked, uh, the police have asked me, should I do this? What, what do you think I should do? And I, I was just thinking this is a this is a really interesting framework for trying to process an answer to that. And and I was wondering, is it even legitimate for the, the state through the through the arm of, of the police to say to ask that question of you? Um, because because it's is it a question that's legitimate for us to answer? But no, that's that's helpful. As your initial sort of response, I think that's a that's a helpful leaving room for mercy. And yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'd, I'd want to investigate other biblical passages on, 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 on mercy and, and a king showing mercy and, and whether or not there's space for that. And I think, I think you'll find that there is. So. Any other questions, brothers? Can I also add the mathematical equivalency thing a little bit more? Um, I'm just thinking about scenarios where in a particular state, um, maybe there's a space of some real petty crime. And then I say petty shoplifting is just running out of control. Does the state have the authority to legitimately impose a really heavy sanction to act as a deterrent, or does that violate this mathematical equivalency principle? Well, what do you mean, like cutting off your hand? Well, yeah, well, I wasn't necessarily that, but putting in prison for a really, really long time. Um, I don't think so. I think that leads to problems of. Well, look, I mean, an illustration of that would be in my own country with problems of mass incarceration for, for uh, you know, drug usage or drug dealing. And, uh, you, know, you know, we can have another conversation on whether or not that should even be criminalized in the first place. But, but let's assume the government decides to, to, to criminalize drug usage. You know, so you get guys, guys um, a lot of people smoking pot and especially among the underclass, American underclass, 
And uh, so you have a, a, a massive number of minorities, especially in prison for minor drug possession charges uh, as a way of cracking down the war on you know, drugs, Ronald Reagan, 1980s. And that, that produces a generation of, of black fathers now in jail because they, you know, they had a gram of marijuana that they were caught with. And so now we'll think about the reduplicating effects of that. You, know, you have a generation of children who's, you know, one out of two of them, their, their, their parents, their dad was, was in prison for seven years because he possessed a gram of, of marijuana. And that leads to problems in the family and that leads to other crimes. And, you know, it just, it, it compounds, it gets worse, right? Through this, this problem of mass incarceration. Um, and, uh, you know, the prison rates for America is terrible. So I, yeah, bottom line to your question, no. I think you need to maintain something like a mathematical equivalency. I think you need to pursue that. So now that's hard to do with time in prison. How do you measure time in prison with a certain crime? That's, but yeah, I think you, I think you want to, you want to aspire to it to whatever extent you can. And, uh, you know, even capital punishment. You know, think about the biblical standard for capital punishment. Two or three witnesses. That There's not any country that, you know, that's done that. Even America, where capital punishment remains legal in member states, doesn't require two or three witnesses. That would dramatically restrict the frequency of it. And uh, Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to stick with the biblical guidelines. I mean, I, I'm in conflict. Um, I think your framework, uh, what you talked today, is is brilliant and helpful. I'm trying to apply this because there's conversations about uh, representations in regards to Black Americans and America's hand in slavery. Um, the massive incarceration in the, um, in the USA. So we remember those Reagan days, doesn't we? And it's complicated because Reagan and those days, they had a hand in, in the crack cocaine wasn't just a, a black American thing. It, it came in, um, it, it, it came in through decisions made um, by Reagan's cabinet and people around us. So I'm trying to work out this framework and think how do we apply this? How do I apply this biblically and think about just the systemic racism what seeps through the states and and, and how do we apply this and think into the government? And, you know, you've got Jay-Z and all those boys, and lots of boys, and Eric Mason and the uh, hearty, lots of Christian, Black Americans, um, Christian and non-Christian, trying to work this out. So I, I find what you're teaching really, really helpful, but I'm just trying to really work, how do I apply this and thinking about the hand, the systemic racism, what comes through the government and, and, and everything. So, and I'm struggling with it. It's helpful, but I find it really, really painful upon my heart and spirit, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. No, I, 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 th I think, I think if I understand the question you're asking, uh, and I, I might be misunderstanding, brother, so correct me, is the injustices that you see presently perpetrated in my own system are not a demonstration, an illustration of the outline I'm giving here that, that I think Genesis teach. In fact, I would say it's a corruption of what's here. 
which is why I said there's a brilliance in the whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for man was made in God's own image. I said it's it's self-reinforcing. And what you get in, in a lot of these, these prominent um, public acts of injustice, you know, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, kind of these, these prominent names that have been popular, at least from, from uh, well-known, is because there was an excessive use of force. And so there is a right call to bring justice against the excessive use of force. Remember what I said? I said uh, an unjust dictator or dirty town sheriff or racist police officer, the justice mechanism here boomerangs back and goes against him if he goes beyond what's required. So when you have, when you have a, a man who is clearly under the influence of drugs and, and behaving irrationally, you still don't keep your knee on his neck for nine minutes to the point of killing him. I mean, that's an excessive use of force, right? Um, it's just, it should even take the, the, the racial question of George Floyd out of it, just the, the pure human to human thing here that's an excessive use of force and um that's why i think police officers need to be excessively careful to remain within the boundaries of justice and when they don't people get mad i, I, I suppose um you say this excessive force is only because it was made public so black americans have been on the hand of excessive force for many, many years from slavery to Ku Klux Klan. So it's hard to apply this when it's the system itself which is oppressive. So Nancy Reagan, um, just say no to drugs. Who are you kidding us? The kids decimated a black community. So incarceration is a huge problem. It's how does one apply this when it's the system itself um, and, and activists? Um, that could be the same conversation about racism in the UK. So I'm just trying to work out how do I apply this. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, so the, so then you need to make a just. Uh, it's not a good good enough just to say the system itself. Uh, okay, what do you mean specifically? What what specifically are you targeting? And, and you need to figure out how to make those fixes so that the quote unquote system itself isn't wrongfully using force. Right. Mm -hmm. So. I kind of I kind of feel like you're making my point, which is you need a system, you need a justice mechanism that properly renders judgment. And insofar it doesn't, you got to do something to fix that system. Right? Yeah. I don't know. I find what you're saying and teaching really, really helpful. Really, really helpful. Uh yeah, so then, then, then Christians, I mean, this is, this is where, you know, I, I hope this would animate Christians and injustice systems to be like, okay, let's, let's think carefully here. What is, what is, you're right. Why is it that minorities for, for decades in the U.S. have not received just recompense, but unjust, unjust recompense? Why? What, what's going on here? This isn't fair. And, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to fill out, well, what do you mean by fair? Well, fair by these standards that God has established. That's the problem. Why is it that, you know, a, a, a 
a white person and a black person in the United States are, are going to be placed in prison for disparate amounts of times for the same crime. You know, the shoplifting white and the shoplifting black, one serves six months, one serves seven years. What's with that? That is not Genesis 9, 5, 9, 5 and 6. So why the breakdown? One serving six months, one serving seven years. Where's the mathematical equivalency there? Okay, there's something else throwing a wrench into this system. We got to figure that out. Okay, uh, let's take a 10 minute break. And is that what we have a 10 minute break? Yes, 10 minutes. No, five minute break. Five minute break. 727. Or sorry, 12. 27. We'll be back. Third purpose for government to set the stage for redemption. Um, and I, I, I do think this is the ultimate purpose for government. Go back to the analogy I used a few minutes ago about you know the proximate purpose of, of guardrails on the mountain highway or to keep the cars on the road, but, but the ultimate purpose of those guardrails is to help cars get from city A to city B, right? And, and we're, we're now at that ultimate purpose. A good government sets the stage for God's plan of redemption. It clears a way for people of God to do the work of God and calling, work of calling the nations to God. <clears throat> and I, I think... Here we see the relationship between God's common grace gifts and requirements and his special grace purposes. Uh, remember, I said there's two ways to view that relationship between common and special grace covenants. One way is it fulfills the work of redemption, and we're going we're to think about that as tomorrow as we start getting towards the church. <clears throat> but the other way, I said, is platform, and that's what we have here. We have, we have a platform being set up for uh, uh, the plan of redemption. Uh, people must, as I said, people must learn to read before they can read the Bible. People must eat healthy food and breathe non-toxic air so they can live, know God, and worship him. Children benefit by having loving parents so they can better apprehend the love of God the Father. Does that make sense? So, so God means for the stuff of ordinary, everyday life to serve to be a platform for the purpose of salvation and eternity, and so it is with government. God authorizes human beings to form governments in Genesis 9, and then he calls Abraham in Genesis 12, inaugurating the Bible storyline of redemption. So Genesis 9, you know, here it is in a nutshell, what I'm trying to say, guys. Uh, Genesis 9 comes before Genesis 12 for a reason. The first builds a platform, sets the stage. The second begins God's saving work. The work of government is a, here it is in a sentence, the work of government is a prerequisite to redemption. The work of government is a prerequisite to the work of redemption. And I think this is precisely what you see in the New Testament. I want you to turn to these passages, just underline them in the Bibles or your government texts. Acts 17, turn to Acts 17. Verses 26 and 27. I'm pausing for you to turn there. 
Acts 17, 26 and 27. And he, Paul says, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries, I think national or empire or whatever, national boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So God has determined the allotted periods and boundaries of nations, and when those nations will rise and fall. Why is that? Well, that there might be a platform sustaining human life that people might seek him, it says. Uh, turn to, to 1 Timothy. We see the same thing. Why, why should Christians care about good government? Well, immediately for the sake of justice, but ultimately so that there's a platform for salvation. So listen to, listen to how Paul says we should pray. 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 4. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So, so notice in this text the connection between the king and a peaceful life and then salvation. Doesn't go directly from king to salvation. Pray for your king so that you'll be saved. But pray for your king so you have a peaceful life. Well, why, why do I need a peaceful life? Because people need to get saved. See, the, the, the king's work is a prerequisite. It provides that peaceful life. And that peaceful life, then, is a condition for the ability for people to live, share the gospel, go to church, make disciples. Right, allows people to build churches. Christians should care and pray for good government because they want people to be saved. Christians should pray and care for good government because they want people to be saved. That's what the verse says. The governments of Islamic State or Tom or Lane, from a human standpoint, really did hinder the proclamation of the gospel and the work of salvation. God is providential over it all, yes, but from our, our perspective, it did hinder it. And the same is true in today's Muslim nations. It's true, becoming true in the so-called secular nations of Europe, um, where some want to classify belief in God as a mental illness or criminalize proselytizing Muslims or ban homeschooling because it allows for indoctrinating one's children with Christianity. It's true in America, whenever the government opposes this or that form of religious freedom, the principles of Scripture. So, brothers, we need to pray and work for good government. We need to teach our congregations to pray and work for good government. Salvation, in one sense, depends on it. Uh, okay, what should we say about the limits of government? I gave you three purposes, two theories, three purposes. Let's think about the limits. I think it's pretty straightforward. Christians should seek to limit a government's authority to those places where God has given it. Uh, we've already talked about no governing official should abuse the citizens. Based on Genesis 9, 5, and 6, the racist police officer, for instance, that's, that's one limit. You, you don't want government going places God is not authorized to go. That's a second way of thinking about its limits. So I've mentioned it a couple of times now. Is he authorized NHS to redefine gender? Has he authorized the U.S. Supreme Court to redefine marriage? No, he has not. Uh, gratefully, a, a Supreme Court justice 
Chief Justice John Roberts agreed in a, in a dissenting opinion. He said, the fund- fundamental right to marry does not include a right to make a state change its definition of marriage. He said in his dissent to Obergefell, and I think he was right, biblically, whether he knew it or not. I, I think the topic of religious freedom or tolerance also roots in the limits of governments. Uh, I dare say scripture requires us to tolerate one another's gods. The biblical argument for religious tolerance doesn't start with the conscience, as it so often does in the Enlightenment literature. It starts with the fact that neither Genesis 9 nor any other passage in scripture authorizes human beings to prosecute crimes against God. It only authorizes us to prosecute crimes against our fellow human beings. So, So listen to Genesis 9, 5, and 6 again. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Verse 5, right? Whoever sheds the blood of man. And notice that these verses are explicitly, exclusively, even graphically, blood concerns with crimes against humans. So that's the government's jurisdiction. What, What do these verses not authorize us to do? Well, they do not authorize us to punish crimes that are exclusively crimes against God. Uh, after all, I, I get this point from Vern Poitras. After all, how, how can a human government establish the extent of a crime committed against God, such as idolatry or blasphemy, or the sin of the heart like pride? How, how, how can parity be measured? How can retribution be assessed, re- recompense needed? You know, how, how do you measure? a crime against God, say, okay, well, here's the penalty for that. And I would say at no other point in Scripture is there the authorization of governments of the nations to punish false worship. Exception, the commandments in Deuteronomy 13 to stone those who pursue other gods. But does that apply to the nations? Well, no, that is a law that is given to the people of Israel. They were doing something different, which we'll get to tomorrow as we think about the special covenants. But here, under the common covenant creation institution of government, Nebuchadnezzar, Pharaoh, Caesar, Pilate, you know, Boris Johnson, they are not authorized to criminalize blasphemy false worship. So I would say the first plank in a Christian doctrine of religious tolerance is the fact that the state and its citizens must tolerate the worship of those gods whom one does not acknowledge, at least until those gods do harm to oneself or one's neighbor. that's, That's the first plank in a biblical doctrine of religious tolerance. You must tolerate the worship of gods you don't acknowledge, as long as they're not doing harm to you or your neighbor. We don't possess the authority to do otherwise. Um, and, and notice when I say it, there's no invoking of the conscience here, though the conscience is left free to worship as it pleases. The freed conscience is a fruit of this doctrine. It's not the grounds of this doctrine. And notice also that there's a limit to this toleration. And the limit to this toleration, of course, would be demonstrable harm to a human being. When Christian scientists, for instance, refuse medical treatment for their children, and who are you to say? That's your religion. I have my religion. We're, we're not going to, we don't believe in medical care. I'm not sending my kids to the doctor. I, I, I feel no moral obligation to tolerate their religion. 
I believe the state should intervene and protect those children. So there are limits to religious toleration. Whoever sheds the blood of man. Uh, Okay, well, what about the growing practice of citing, quote unquote, emotional harm as an argument against traditional moral principles? So, uh, you know, one illustration, a New York judge ruled that the Giffords, this this Christian couple who rented out their family farm for weddings, had to pay $3,000 for, quote unquote, the mental anguish they caused a lesbian couple for refusing to rent their property to that lesbian couple for a wedding. Well, Genesis 9 offers an objective standard for demonstrable harm, shed blood. I'm not saying that blood should be the sole standard of harm, but I do think Christian legal minds may need to spend a little more time figuring out how to make arguments for objective, not subjective, emotional anguish, standards of harm. Right? And, and in this day and age, in, in which the, the self has been entirely psychologized and psychology has been sexualized and sexuality has been politicized. Here I'm borrowing from Carl Truman in that little chain of causation. Yeah, increasingly internal psychological harm is becoming the standard in in our courts, especially psychological harm around standards of identity and gender identity. And that's, that's a different kind of injustice. It's going beyond scripture. It's perverting scripture in a different sort of way. Scripture keeps it nice and concrete, objective. Um, these days, harm is construed as anything that makes me feel bad. So it's my own subjective sense of what you've done against me that hurts my feelings, that makes me feel you know, assaulted that strangely courts are increasingly finding compelling. And uh, that's a different kind of perversion of what we're talking about here. Um, Is it okay if I ask a question, Jonathan? Sorry. I think there's a second plank in a doctrine of religious tolerance, which, which, will make more sense after we discuss the doctrine of the church, but let me go ahead and set it now, say it now. So, so, so if the first plank is, you know, you, you don't have authority, you've not been given authority to, to prosecute crimes and, and you must tolerate your, your, your neighbor's false God. The second plank is, is governments do not possess the keys of the kingdom. They do not possess the keys of the kingdom. The church possesses that. They have no ability to coerce true worship. Um, and and, 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 and uh, I, I, I do like the, the phrase in the U.S. Constitution here, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Notice it doesn't say Congress shall not establish a religion. I, I would say there's a sense in which every law establishes a religion, a law against murder, establishes an element of Christianity as well as several other religions. But an establishment of religion is something different. It's an independent institutional authority that declares what a religion believes and who its adherents are. So an establishment of religion patrols its own borders and sets its own rules. I don't think government should do that for Christianity or for any other religion. Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom to the churches to declare themselves an establishment of religion. 
Government is the power of the sword, not the power of the keys. That, that's a second plank in a doctrine of religious tolerance. I, I once had coffee with um, Oliver O'Donovan. You may know him. He's a, he's a, a, a British ethicist and political theologian, and he's an Anglican. And uh, he's very much, uh, I was talking to him about these very things. And he, he, he responded by saying, well, no, I, I actually, I think Charlemagne, this is the phrase he used. He says, Charlemagne does, Charlemagne does have the ability to say right bishop, wrong bishop, you know, go to his church, not to his church. You know, and I think Trump was the president at the time. <laughs> I'm like, really? So you want Trump, Donald Trump, deciding who gets baptized and who doesn't? Is, wouldn't that mean equivalent thing? Charlemagne sounds poetic and you know lovely in some weird sense. Charlemagne saying right bishop, wrong bishop. Okay, let's let's put that in a modern vernacular. Trump saying you get baptized, not him. I I don't think you want that. Um. So, okay. F. What is the best form of government? F. What is the best form of government? three thoughts. First, there's no abstract ideal form of government in the Bible. There is no abstract ideal form of government in the Bible. Uh, it is Greek philosophy which thinks about it in terms of these kinds of structures. I, I trust you guys, some of you have read Plato or Aristotle. Aristotle, you know, laying out, okay, here's, here's, here's monarchy, here's oligarchy, here's democracy. Um, in the string, strong and weak versions of each, right? The Bible doesn't think that way. The Hebrew mind didn't think that way. The, the Bible evaluates every historical government according to whether or not it accomplishes the task God set for it in Genesis 9, 5, and 6. Is this particular government rendering judgment according to God's understanding of right, thereby preserving and honoring all people made in his image and providing a platform of redemptive work for a special people? That, that's it's interest in justice and righteousness, whether it's a democracy or a monarchy. That, that's not the point. Point is, is it is it implementing what God intends for government to implement? No, notice also the Bible never says anything about how government should be formed. You know, should we? There's three ways to form a government. Number one, military conquest. Number two, inheritance. Number three, democratic agreement. And you see all three options afforded by history, but nowhere does the Bible say, right? In fact, what you do see is God employing several forms of government for his own people through the course of the Old Testament. So you have, you have the family structures among the patriarchs. You have judges from Moses to Samuel. You have monarchy from Saul to exile. And then you have the kind of formally independent kahal, assemblies, while in exile. So, so no system was sacrosanct. The problem when the people asked for a king was not that they asked for a certain structure of government. That's not the point. You, you know, the episode of Samuel or... They asked for a king. The problem was that we want a king like the nations. That was the problem. Not, not just the mere idea of a king. Because, of course, God, a few chapters later, establishes a king through, through his king, through David. God had purposes as a monarchy. So it's not the monarchical structure that's the problem. It was the people's hearts that was a problem. God's happy, as it were, to use any one of these forms. 
Now, personally, I think Winston Churchill was right when he says democracy is, you know, the worst form of government, except for all the others that would have been tried. I'm with them. Um, but I, I would say that's a matter of wisdom. I would say, I would not say that's a matter of biblical absolute principle. I would also say that the various structures that we associate with liberal government, like popular elections, a written constitution, um, judicial review, separation of, of powers, I, I think these are wise things that contribute to, to good. Yet again, I'm drawing these convictions out of the wisdom bucket, not out of the biblical law bucket. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think democracy is an absolute place being on an island of pirates. Yeah, I'd, I'd rather have a good king. <laughs> I don't think democracy on an island of pirates is such a good idea. So it is not an absolute thing. But ordinarily, I, yeah, I like democratic republicanism and some, some, some version of it. Um, as, as, as a wise way forward. Okay, so that, that's the first point about the best form. There's no abstract ideal in, in the Bible. The Christian is interested in righteousness and justice. Second, the best form of government in the Bible is any government that wisely and fairly reckons injustices. Um, now, I think the things that make a democracy a democracy are often do fulfill a Genesis 9 mandate. <clears throat> they allow people to be treated as equals and impartially render judgment. Uh, but, but they don't do it perfectly, as, as, as the brother's question right before our break indicated. Why is it that white Americans seem to be treated fairly and equally while black Americans are not? What's with that? You know? So there is, there is a breakdown in, in, in the U.S. system in that regard. It needs to be fixed, and it needs to be fixed according to biblical criteria. Some other criteria, a biblical criteria of fairness and impartiality. Um, third, I would say every human being bears some measure of responsibility to pursue the best government. Every human being bears some responsibility to pursue the best government. I think, where do I get that? Why God's authorizing words in Genesis 9, 5, and 6 apply to all of us, whoever sheds the blood of man. Notice that we have the language is used. Whoever does this by man, that rests on all of us. That doesn't rest just on Noah. That doesn't rest just on the people of Israel. That rests on all of us. We're all responsible for fulfilling this basic requirement of justice, each for his or her part, whether through playing a role in government or supporting the government or voting for the government or just obeying the government you know, Christian in Iran, insofar as you can. We all have some measure of responsibility to see that these verses get done, each for our part. Um, now, most humans in history have possessed a very limited range of what they could do to work for good government. What do you say to the Greek, Roman, Chinese Christian or the American slave about their responsibility to pursue, pursue good government? Yet I'm just saying, and my only point here is insofar as you have any opportunity at all to work for a good government, maybe you are the king's indentured, indentured cup holder, and you can whisper in his ear, maybe you are a democratic citizen in a possession of a vote. You are obligated as a matter not of consent, but as a matter of obedience to God to work for gov good government. It's one way you love your neighbor as yourself. So 
uh, just think about your vote for a second. Who or what should Christians vote for? Well, we should come in with a clear view. And brothers, this is what you're teaching your congregation. This is how you teach them to vote. Should pastors tell them who to vote for? In one sense, yes. You do that by giving your congregation a clear view of what government has been authorized, ordered by God to do, to exercise judgment and establish justice, to build platforms of peace, order, and flourishing, and to make sure people are free and not hindered from knowing God and being redeemed. Those three purposes of government that I just laid out for you, you want to teach your congregation that so that they know how to vote. And we should allow that framework to guide us to consider the candidates, parties, legislation, ballots, measures we vote for. So we don't want a government thinks it can offer redemption, but a government that views itself as a prerequisite of redemption for all its citizens. It, it builds the streets so you can drive to church. It protects the womb so that you can live and hear the gospel. It, it insists on fair lending and housing practices so that you can own a home and off, offer hospitality to non-Christians. It, it works for education so that you can read and teach your children to read the Bible. It, it protects marriage and the family so that husbands and wives can model Christ's love for the church. Notice I'm going common grace, special grace, and all of these examples. It polices the streets so that you are free to assemble as churches unmolested and make an honest living so that you can give money to the work of God. Now, you might disagree with government involvement in the examples I just gave you, but that's the grid I, uh, we need to see and to adopt. Governments render judgment to establish peace, order, and prosperity so that the church might do what God calls it to do. Um, bottom line, let me, let, me, let me conclude, and we can spend the rest of our time in questions. Don't put too much hope in government, but don't give it up on, on it either. Christians need good government to a culture and its political institutions might turn against Christianity, but Christians should strive to make an impact as long as they have opportunity. It can get worse. Just ask our brothers and sisters in China or Iran. And so this, this is what I told a Sunday school class on at, at my church on Capitol Hill in a series I did on Christian governments a little, little while ago. I said to them, uh, you know, brothers and sisters, for, for those of you who work in government, let me embolden you with this charge. We need you to work on making America safe for Christianity. And I'm using the word need not to override divine sovereignty, but the way you might say a child needs her parent to protect her and feed her. So those of you who work in politics, I said to them, thank you for what you do. It might feel like an exercise in futility, but it is critical. Work and pray hard for it. The rest of us are called to pray, we're called to engage, we're called finally to trust that Jesus will win. Okay. Uh, these are the types of things that I think too few Christians understand. Uh, I think too few Christians have been discipled to understand good government, what it is. And it starts with you guys understanding so that you may in turn disciple others. Any questions? Hi, Jonathan, maybe I could just ask a question um, on just a very basic question. Really, on, on Somebody asks a question I see here. Oh. I struggle to connect justice 
and mercy, thinking of capital punishment, should we, instead of saying capital punishment, should always be applied? Should we say that each case is different? Yeah, I would, I would say that each case is different. You need to, you need to account for, for, for the circumstances. Um, um, yeah, I, th I, th I think uh, I, re I read something recently about the need for mercy to temper justice even in, in civil governments. I wish I could remember where I read that. It was very good. Um, but no, no. I'm, and especially if, if you have a system characterized by the misapplication of capital punishment. You know, I, 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 don't, I don't know that I would say the Bible is saying we absolutely must support or that capital punishment in any and every regime is just. Um, but I think it's, 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 it's that it's that authorization in Genesis 9-6, which gives government its teeth. The fact that government can say, I can kill you, all its formal authority rests in that. If it if it can't do that, it finally has, if you do if you don't have the power of punishment, if you don't have power of discipline, if you don't have teeth. It's just, it's just counsel. Hey, I'd really encourage you to not do this. It's the fact that they can finally kill you that finally is the, 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 the basis for their authority, government's authority. So as, as a formal principle, yes, I, I think there is a right of capital punishment. Now, how that gets played out, meted out in any given system is going to be affected by circumstance. And there always needs to be an aspirations towards doing it justly and rightly. And insofar as that's not done, then capital punishment is not a, a good solution. Um, you know, but what's the alternative? Life in prison? That's not exactly a good thing either. Other questions? Can you hear, can you hear us, Jonathan? Oh, okay. Well, it's not muted. Like, like Ron Brown. Yes. What's your name? Can you hear us, Jonathan? You know what? I can't hear you guys. He's, he's coming. He's here. That's so weird. Oh, okay. There we go. Can, can you hear us now, Jonathan? Yeah, I can. I can. Oh, great, great. So, sorry, my name is Paul. Paul Pomeroy. Um, I just wanted to ask quite a basic question, really, on, on human rights. Um, yep. People talk a lot, don't they, about, about human rights. This is my right. I think you mentioned it kind of in, in passing. Um, is, that a, is that a biblical concept? W would you take that from Genesis 9? Um, how, how, how do we understand that? Um, yeah, I'll talk a little bit about rights in my next lecture uh, on justice. What is justice? Um. I do think it's a biblical concept, and, and here's where, though, I'm going to build entirely on Oliver O'Donovan. Uh, I think in the liberal democratic tradition, rights are freestanding, they're free-floating, they're original, justice as rights, whereas in a Christian biblical vision, I believe in, to, again, to borrow from O'Donovan, justice as right. Justice starts with what God says is right. 
And our rights, notice the S, our rights depend on what God says is right. So what we want is a rights are not primary. Rights are derivative. I want a right set of rights. I want just rights. And the problem in this moment is in, in, in the liberal democratic tradition, who gets to define what's right or what, what our rights are? Right to an abortion? Right to define my gender? You know, right to euthanize my parents? Are those just rights? So if you, if you, if you make rights your foundation, your basis for justice, justice is rights, it's basically over to majoritarianism. It's basically over to what the majority can define as these rights, not those rights. That's going to change given your society. In a biblical conceptionality, yeah, I absolutely affirm rights. But it's God who gets to define those rights based on the Imago Dei. Okay, that's, you'll get a little of that more tomorrow. Did I answer your question, brother? Yeah, that's great. Thank you very Paul? much. Anyone else? Can I ask a question, Jonathan? Um, can you hear me? Andy. Yeah. Um, just on your point A of limits of government and religious tolerance, um, I just thought in, in terms of respecting kind of non-Christians and their view on God, so on like one of the Ten Commandments, say one of them you had someone blaspheme on the tube in London, would I be wrong to challenge the person and say, I find that really offensive, you using Jesus' name in that way? And um, would that be an illegitimate use um, of, of the Bible, do you think? Oh, I'm happy for you to do that. The question is, would you, would you grab a police officer and, by the authority of the government, constrain him from doing that? Those are different things. Sure, sure. So you personally, great, do it. Yeah. Fine. If you, if you think it'll be helpful. But employ the power of the state to shut him up? That's something different. Sure. Yeah. No, I wasn't in a sense no, arguing call nine 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 and uh, you know, yeah. Just just in terms of yeah, sort of um, knowing kind of where the boundaries are, I guess really. And I, I you just kind of made me think that we 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 couldn't in a sense. Um, so I just thought I'd ask. Thank you. Yeah. No. Good. I mean, now there may be certain uh, other 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 principles that would would apply. Of, of of peaceful decorum you know you know so that, so the tube might decide and force you know you know pe people can't start acting crazy and insulting one another and and, and disturb you know disturbing the peace that that's a crime in my country quote unquote disturbing the peace I, I trust you have something like that um you know so somebody starts screaming at you in a, you know in the tube <clears throat> you know that that's a problem for other reasons and if it happens to be against your God, well, that's that's not so much the point as the fact that they're, they're screaming at you. you know, so you might have other reasons to constrain such speech, but 
Yeah, I don't think you want to you want to constrain false religion with the power of the state. Insofar as it brings no human to human beings, I don't think we're authorized to do that. Yeah, thank you. All right. Okay. Anything else? Going once. Going twice. You guys are like, dude, it's four minutes over. I'm out of here. <laughs> that one guy, he's gone. <laughs> um, let, let me close this in prayer. Father God, thank you again for your mercy. Thank you for the governments that we, we, we all enjoy. Governments that provide peace, order, and allow for flourishing in spite of the sins and 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 injustices we know both of our governments perpetrate in one form or another, we do thank you for the for the flourishing and the prosperity and the order, the peace our uh, we and our families and our fellow citizens have all enjoyed. So we thank you for the for the good work of the British government and the American government for each for their parts. And, and Lord, you tell us to pray for those that we may live peaceful and quiet lives. We pray that you would sustain Congress and Parliament, Cabinet, the executive agency, uh, the courts, the judges. We pray that you would sustain them and cause them to, to rule with wisdom. We pray for the voters of our respective nation, nations that we would we would vote wisely according to principles of justice and righteousness. We, we pray that um, you would sustain good governments in both of these nations for, for, for many years, many decades, we ask, so that churches continue to preach the gospel and flourish. Would you do this, Lord? We thank you for hearing our prayers. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, guys, uh, I kind of assumed that that lecture, that what is government lecture might take a couple. So I'm not shocked that that happened. We'll come back tomorrow morning. We'll, we'll think about justice. It's just sort of an implication when now filling that out of government a little bit more, just the idea of justice. And we will then um, resume our biblical storyline and get to the church. And that will allow us to think a lot more about, okay, pastoral responsibilities with regard to the government. And what does it mean to be dual citizens? And so forth. All right. So I will see you tomorrow, Lord willing, at 1020. Thank you. Thank God you. bless. Bye.